The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, good evening. <clears throat> so, can you hear me all right? Is it loud enough out there? You're so far away. So, you can, you can really hear me out there? A little bit louder? Let's see. Can you hear me now? Can you see me now? <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, okay, great. So, um, so I'll continue this evening with the series of talks on the seven factors of awakening. This is one of the core lists in the Buddhist tradition. There's many lists, but there's a few in terms of the meditation practice which are particularly important. And the two, uh, probably the most important in terms of meditation are the list of things you want to overcome when you meditate and the list of things that you want to develop. And what you want to overcome is the five hindrances, the five obscurations, what keeps your mind agitated, caught up, preoccupied. And then you want to develop the seven factors of awakening, which are these beautiful factors that arise uh, in the course of practice. So today the topic is going to be concentration, and um, as an introduction to, which is the concentration is the sixth factor. So we've done now five of them, and the first five are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, and tranquility. Uh, And uh, so now, building on all these comes concentration. The topic of uh, or the the word concentration translates samadhi, which uh, has such an important role in some of the different Indian yogic traditions that it, uh, you know, it's very, it has almost a sacred connotations or feeling. It's a very special and word, very powerful word in some of the systems of Indian religions. And, um, and in some, some Indian religions, the word samadhi is, is used for the ultimate goal, what maybe in Buddhist terms we'd call nirvana. So it has a kind of very special place. Uh, and, um, and exactly what it is, uh, is not conveyed so well by the English word concentration. Samadhi is a richer wor- word. For one thing, samadhi refers to a state, a state of being, more than uh, an activity of the mind, like a focus of the mind. And so to develop samadhi is not to develop or only develop a you know, one-pointed focus of mind. It's to develop a very holistic, uh, integrated, unified state of being that arises when, when the attention is really centered and stabilized and undistracted from the stable focus that it has. And that unified feeling, integrated holistic feeling uh, state is quite sublime. It's quite a beautiful thing, partly because it's a state of being unfragmented. And many times in life, we go around being quite fragmented. We jump around and do many different things, and the mind jumps around quite a bit. Um, And, you know, one of the interesting exercises to do in meditation, if you've never done it, uh, you might try it periodically, 
is to count your breaths. And you don't have to count very high. Uh, it's good enough just to count to 10. 10 breaths. Like I, I like to count the exhale. That's, that's how I was taught. And then when you get to 10, if you get to 10, start again at 1. And why, why it's an interesting exercise, it's a kind of a reality check to find out how present are you really or how much do you get swept away into your thoughts and away from what you're trying to do and be present. And the chances are, you, uh, some of you probably won't even get to one or two or three, and let alone you know, getting up to 10. But so it's not that you have to get to 10, but what's very helpful is to kind of notice how far you get and what takes you away. And then you start studying that, get interested in that, what goes on in that mind that pulls you away from, the, from just being focused on the breath in the moment. And once you start seeing that, uh, what distracts you, what preoccupies you, then you can start develop some, developing some wisdom about it. Uh, you can understand, is it really worthwhile uh, reviewing your shopping list one more time? Is it really you know, uh, worthwhile to have one more sexual fantasy? You know, you've had your share of them, perhaps. And, you know, one more, you know, is it really worth, it, or do you have better things to do? And, you know, you can go through the, the common things that pull you away. And, you know, if you really take it in and really register what your mind is doing with wisdom, with some understanding, uh, as opposed to just giving in and kind of not really paying attention to what you're doing, but really kind of clearly, intentionally acknowledging what your mind is doing, is this what you really want to be doing? Does this really serve you? Does it nourish you? Does it benefit you? And with some wisdom like that, it might be almost a natural thing without any effort to say, no, thank you, and then start again. And, and then not be so easily prone to wandering off. You might find over time that it's actually more enjoyable, more satisfying to stay in the present moment on something like the breath than it is to jump around with the mind in all the different places the mind can go. Um, I think that it's been said many times, but I think that uh, it's fair to say that our 21st century minds are becoming increasingly fragmented and distracted. Uh, I think uh, the, so many of us will spend a lot of time on screens now, and there's something about the way the mind and the fingers work on the screens and the, that uh, keeps us kind of searching and looking and engaged and it's, in some ways it can be a nice engagement, but it also can reinforce the mind jumping ahead and wanting, and you hear the ping of an email, and, oh, I've got to check that, and let me look at this, and, you know, let's just say, you know, you do an email, I should check the news, you know, or, you know, this and that. And, um, and then you jump around between websites, and you search, and you're, that's searching and looking, and something pops up, and you look at it and try to understand it, and then you get impatient, look for the next thing, and follow the links, so, you know, all these things. And it doesn't, it's not conducive to a settled, stable, relaxed mind, a mind that's at rest in itself, that's open and intelligent and engaged, but is not jumping around, it's not looking for something beyond itself and looking for the next thing and a little bit anxious, you know, what more is there to get? I don't know if that characterizes your mind very well, but I suspect that if you pay attention to the effect of screens, I noticed at some point that, that I had to be careful with these screens for myself, because I found, I don't know if addictive is the right word, but I found that um, uh, there was this momentum in my mind that was not what my desire, my wish, what I wanted to do. There was almost like a physical momentum in my mind to keep searching, keep looking, keep checking. Um, 
beyond you know, any tiny kind of time that I needed to do what I was doing. And that momentum of looking and wanting on the screens is not conducive to this holistic, integrated sense of just being present that comes with samadhi. And I think that... Um, so, um, so these seven factors of awakening, now in the sixth factor comes with the state of samadhi, and it builds on the others. And I want to step back and offer you a very simple practice that I do, also as a way of getting into this topic in a particular way. And a very nice uh, practice I have for myself is that when my mind has a trouble concentrating, I sit down to meditate, and my mind you know, has a mind of its own, I'm thinking a lot, and it can't just, 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 my thinking just kind of pulls me away, and I'm not really meditating, I'm not really here in, in a mindful, clear, intentional way. And I'll try to gather myself and refocus on my breath and come back. And it just doesn't work because the mind is kind of off and thinking about a lot of things. And so um, in those circumstances, what I like to do, one of the things I like to do is to say to myself the word here, H-E-R-E. I just say here. And, um, and it's, a, it's not like a command like you do to a dog, here. It's, uh, it's actually kind of more like Acknowledging, I'm here, this is here. And then, as if here is completely okay to be here. Whatever is here is fine. And here, and then I kind of like open my mind, my awareness up, and just to see and experience what here is like. Here is a person whose mind is distracted. Here is, here is a busy mind. Just here, oh, that's what it's like, here. Here is whatever comes up. I do here, and then whatever shows itself that's happening at the present moment, I just like take it in and register, oh, here, this is what it's like. And I don't have any hope that I'm going to stay present more than a moment. You know, just a moment beyond just saying here. Like here and I register. And um, so it's very allowing. It's very, uh, there's no judgments about what's going on. But it slowly begins to help me not to be so caught up or feeding the things that I'm thinking about. And it's, it's done in a very peaceful way because I'm not against having a distracted mind. I'm not struggling against it. But I'm waking up from it. I'm becoming kind of bigger than it. I'm making space for it. And I'm not feeding it by perpetuating it and keep thinking about it. And I'll do that for, for a while. And generally, if I do that for, for you know, a few minutes, things begin to quiet down. But if I try to force my mind to stop thinking a lot, like just really bear down on my breath and really stay focused, or try to do other things to kind of stop my mind from being so distracted, uh, often enough it, it actually makes my mind more busy or agitated or tense or something. And this thing just here, this simple thing, just acknowledging that here, it's great to be here. It's, a kind, of a, it's kind of awesome, awe-filled. You know, this being alive is pretty an immense thing. It's a pretty rare thing. It's a pretty complicated thing. Five billion years of evolution has come to you thinking about what's for dinner. I mean, that's pretty amazing. How did you know, that all came together? A lot of things had to happen for you to have those little thoughts about, you know, what should I have for dinner? And, um, you know, it's a pretty complicated event that, uh, you know, a lot of human development and a million development and 
all kinds of things had to happen so you could have that simple thought. It's pretty amazing just to be alive. It's pretty amazing just to be here and to kind of slow down and to take it in. I'll repeat a story I told yesterday. I was walking down here to give the Sunday morning talk and, um, and uh, as I was walking, about, I live about a mile away and so I was walking down and, and I passed a house that where the front door was open and uh, on, the, on the street, on the curb, was a car with uh, many of the doors open wide. And this like two or three-year-old boy came out of the car and another two or three-year-old boy came out of the house. And the one out of the house was carrying some like a backpack. It looked like the family was going on a trip. And uh, so these two boys met each other kind of right in front of me. And then they were walking next to me on the sidewalk a little bit as they went to their car. And, uh, and one of them said to the other, which would you like, the pink one or the yellow one? And the, other, the second boy said, um, I don't care. And the first, or whatever, you know, and the first one said, um, uh, then you can have the yellow one. And I guess he'll have the pink one. And, uh, and I heard this little, they, were, they seemed so small to me, like two or three-year-old boys, and they probably hadn't been talking for that long, learned, hadn't learned to speak very long. And I thought, wow, it's a pretty complicated thing. How do they learn to do that? I mean, they're, they're too young for school. So, you know, how do they learn, like the word witch? Isn't the word witch and yellow? Which is the yellow or the pink? That's complicated ideas. And which do you want? That's even more complicated. There's you, and then, I don't know, it seems like that was pretty, you know, that's pretty sophisticated. <laughs> to know you don't know. And, and, then, and then the other one said, well, in that case, I was kind of like, Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Now, you probably wonder about me now, but... <laughs> but I was kind of a little bit in awe at the, what we often take for granted. It's just so, you know, we take it so much for granted, this complex, amazing capacities we have to be aware, to have language, to communicate. And I was kind of in awe of how did this happen? And so the consequence of that little awe was the rest of the way down here, walking down here, I was just like in a state of awe at the trees and the asphalt and the cars and whatever. Just like here. Wow. Just this. Here. And this ability to be really here, at home in here, at home with yourself at this moment as it is, is one of the great things, one of the great pleasures and you know, one of the great rewards. Or It's very meaningful to just kind of come here in a simple, be at peace, be at home in yourself here. And this is one of the things I feel uh, very grateful to Buddhism for, is to uh, coming to appreciate this and having those kinds of uh, experience uh, come to me much more often than it used to. And um, and some people feel like that's enough, just to be fully here, just appreciate this moment. So this is true, and as we do this practice of being here, we're mindful here, trusting here, being home here, just connecting to here, uh, our psychophysical being, who we are, is not static. Things change. If you um, notice that you're tense, if someone says, boy, your shoulders are really tense, you're up in the shoulders up in the ear, your ears, and you hadn't noticed, 
chances are you say, oh, you know, just like pretty, you know, just you change because of it. You don't say, wow, here, this is like, <laughs> wow, that's pretty cool. Five billion years of e- evolution brought me to ten shoulders. And let, let's celebrate this and I'll show everyone, you know, this amazing accomplishment of the universe. You know, the, the usual thing is just, you know, it's, we're not static, right? Things change. And, um, but how things change depends a lot on the conditions we put into place. And so if you spend the whole day preoccupied and caught up and worried, at the end of the day you have a headache, you know, those, you know, things do change and the conditions you set in place during the day led to the headache. So the, uh, when you practice mindfulness, when you practice here, when you commit yourself to really being, well, I don't know if I'm going to use the word commit, but when you really intend and act on the intention to really intentionally be mindful, intentionally be present for here, intentionally relax in a nice way here, notice what's here, um, even without wanting anything to change, you will change. You can't observe yourself without starting to be involved in a process of change. Just the psychophysical system will change. And that Buddhism talks about this change as often as um, a path that unfolds. And it has a certain patterns that unfold one after the other. And some of these patterns can be watched at times. and You can be familiar with them, see how they kind of almost follow a, um, a lawful pattern or a particular unfolding one after the other. And the seven factors of awakening can be seen in this way. It can be seen as partly as a path of unfolding. That as you develop, first we develop mindfulness, which is simply to be here and recognize what's here. And as we recognize what's here, we become more discerning what's here. We can see more clearly what is here. And, uh, and we can see that having ten shoulders up all the way up past my ears is painful and not so good. And so they come down. You start seeing that you have a, a difference between the tension of being preoccupied, preoccupied with certain things and the relief of that by relaxing the mind and softening. The difference between entering a conversation uh, with hostility and sarcasm versus um, uh, entering a conversation with kindness and generosity and care for the person you're with. To be able to notice the difference of these kinds of approaches means that then we have the ability to choose one over the other in a more useful way. We see that there are paths, forks in the path we can take as we go along. And you don't, almost some, some of these things, you almost don't have to choose which path to take. You'll be, it'll almost be chosen for you if you really are clear and see what's going on. You, you can, it's almost like, you know, if you touch a hot coal, you know, you don't have to think about releasing your hand from the, the hot coal. You, your hand just will do it. But if you're really, pre, really, you have to guess you have to be pretty preoccupied, but if you put your hand on the coal with so preoccupied thinking about something else, you might burn yourself because, you know, the natural process of letting go doesn't happen. So then there's uh, engagement, there's interest, effort. And then there's a, a, as we get engaged more fully in the present moment, it feels like there's an engagement with the present moment. It's not like we have to keep making the effort to be present, but it feels like we're like, like it's kind of like we're in the groove or we're in the flow or we're in... Like, like there's kind of like moving, then uh, a certain joy arises, delight. And so this joy can arise in this practice. 
And joy is a very important part of Buddhist meditation practice, that sooner or later, more often later, uh, joy will arise, and there's different kinds of joys. But the joy of being alive, the joy of being engaged, the joy of having freed up our life energy from all the undermining ways, that uh, places that our, our energy can go, our att- interest, our attention can go. There's so many ways in which people get depressed, get anxious, because of particular ways of thinking that they're involved in, and they kind of can undermine us and drain us. But if our life energy and interest and attention don't go into those undermining thought patterns, the natural aliveness and energy can begin flowing through us. And, uh, and it tend, tends to come with a kind of, uh, with, a, with joy. And the simile that the Buddha used for this kind of joy is that of a lake that has no input from the outside, meaning the, sen- the sense doors are not getting nice, beautiful sights, nice tastes, nice sounds, nice whatever experiences from the outside. So it's not being fed from the outside, but the, the, the lake is being fed from the inside, from an underwater spring that wells up inside that's very refreshing and delightful. And there's movement that moves up from the inside and fills us, fills the lake. with. And so the sense of this, uh, the, the, the joy that comes has this inner feeling. Doesn't, we're not joyful for any reason from the outside world. It all like feels like movement and, and, and some kind of nice energy upwelling from inside. The life energy is released and been freed from all the ways it's bottled and constricted and, and undermines us. And then um, this process then continues uh, 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 relaxing, a calming, settling. The flow of this inner, stru- inner stream, inner uh, spring, begins to calm down. And then the analogy or the simile the Buddha gave is that of a very still pond or lake that's completely still, that's filled with uh, lotus blossoms of different colors. And, and I, I, I guess, this, I don't know if this is the case, but I, apparently lotus blossoms, some of them can blossom underwater. She talks about the, all these lotus blossoms that are blossoming under the water, and they're, they're, they're all suffused and surrounded by this very refreshing, very still water. So imagine the most refreshing, pure, clean kind of water you can go into. It just feels so good to go into. And that's the kind of water that surrounds these lotuses. And the lotuses are of all kinds of colors, implying this the lotus is kind of this, this beautiful flower and this inner sense of beauty, sublime beauty and peace. But there's no movement, but your whole body is suffused by this peace and happiness. And the word that's used here is happiness. And then uh, things get more tranquil, and then we start getting more concentrated. And... Uh, and the concentration here, as I said before, is a state more than a, a focus. And too often people who meditate, who want to get concentrated, will think that they have to kind of bear down a kind of a laser focus. And one of the really uh, 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 difficult things is when people almost think that concentration is, involves seeing through the mind's eye. And so then that sometimes people enga- actually en- have their eyes closed in meditation and actually engage, this, engage their eyes to really kind of try to see what's there. I'm going to be present. And, um, and I don't think, that doesn't really, it's not conducive to the soft, relaxed mind 
that's required to have samadhi. It's a mind that has samadhi, mind state, is a soft, relaxed, pliable, spacious mind. So you, you can't get there by bearing down or getting really tight. We get there more by letting go and relaxing. So there was this path of unfolding. And what I will try to do by starting with the practice of here is to uh, say there's two different movements that go on here in this practice. And some people uh, will do one and not the other and uh, appreciate one but not appreciate the other. But the two, I think, work really well together to create for a peaceful meditation. The first movement is just a movement to be, to be here, uh, to be mindful as if just being this moment is enough and I'll just be here, unconditional acceptance of this moment, just here. Uh, and sometimes people who take that approach actually kind of dismiss or are afraid of or, or have whole philosophies of why uh, there shouldn't be any uh, gaining idea or any place to go and develop. And uh, you, sometimes you go talk to teachers in that school and you say, you know, I got really happy meditating. They say, just let go of that. It doesn't count. Just be here. Um, but then you have the people who don't have any appreciation for the tremendous value and beauty and preciousness of just being here. And they only know about, let's get someplace. Let's, 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 there's a, you know, let's try to improve ourselves and get concentrated and get, let's get that joy. And, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and there's all this striving and pushing and trying to get. And, uh, and that doesn't work so well either. And, but to be able to hold both of them together in balance, to be able to uh, not be chasing after something, but to really cultivating a stronger and stronger ability to be here, relaxing, turning off the cell phones. You know, just you know, give your mind a rest. We need national parks where people, you know, national refuges, refuges where there's no Wi-Fi. It's, you know, our minds, you know, sometimes I think that um, if we could all go back and experience 1960s minds, we would think we were enlightened. <laughs> you, know, you know, because it's basically, I bet our minds were so different back then than this minds that's so computerized. So the value of just coming back and being here and appreciating that as we do this, there is a path that can unfold. And it's a valuable path. It's a worthwhile path. And, and appreciating it and kind of being sensitive to it and making space for it and kind of smelling it and following the scent of it um, supports it and helps us to go forward. And part of these familiarity is to know about these seven factors of awakening. Not to strive after them, but to appreciate them. Uh, to uh, not to make them happen, but to allow them to happen. And as we know them, it's easier to allow for this to occur. Part of this is, is the samadhi. I'm very fond that the word samadhi, uh, it's a Sanskrit word, and it comes from uh, one way of understanding the etymology of the word, is that sam is the same uh, prefix as the English word khan, or come, with. And the D part of samadhi uh, has uh, means to stand or to pose, and it's um, so it becomes posing with, and that becomes very etymologically the same as the English word compose. So the um, 
And I really like the word compose as kind of a translation for samadhi. Because concentration, as I said, implies kind of, many people, a mental focus. Composure is a physical embodied centeredness and groundedness. It's a little bit old-fashioned to say get composed, but some of the older people here will probably remember a time when it was not welcomed to be supposed to compose yourself. But uh, maybe it's time to, uh, you know, resurrect the word, use it more often. The idea of being composed, because, you know, if you say compose yourself, I think many people think of it physically, like just kind of sit up straight and balanced and be settled. And this idea that this integrated, unified field of samadhi has a lot to do with our body. And so just first settle into our body and compose yourself around the breath as opposed to focus the mind's eye on the breath. What happens if you compose yourself on the physical experience of inhaling and exhaling, expansion and contraction, the sensations of breathing? And composure, then you you compose, you're kind of like you're making your body into a temple, a home, that can be the, the, that can house the experience of breathing. Where the experience of breathing happens within that home and you kind of let the, you know, the breeze of the breath come and go and, and there. As opposed to being up in the control tower and you have the control tower, you're kind of zeroing in and looking down and you're kind of actually, when you're in the control tower, you're kind of removed from the experience. As opposed to making yourself a temple, composing yourself and opening yourself in your body and then letting the experience of breathing kind of enter or be in that kind of home place that you're here, you're composed. And you can compose your mind. I think compose your mind is a very different feeling than, constant, than, than focus your mind. To compose your mind, it maybe has some of the same associations as you composing your body. It means calming or settling or stabilizing the mind and not having to jump around and chasing after things. So the body can get composed and settled. The mind can get composed and settled. And, um, and the mind it doesn't have to be have chasing after many things at once. It's actually a quite a wonderful thing to have the mind just be involved with just one thing. Uh, you're thinking about one thing, you're paying attention to one thing. You're just, everything's about one thing. Just, just the breathing, for example, or just being here in the present moment. Some people who, for who are novices to this idea of like, even with the breath, staying just on the breath, um, can't imagine why this should be interesting. Can't imagine why, you know, what's the breath? I mean, it's so boring. You know, there's, there's all these great things to watch on my screen that are, you know, so much more interesting than my breath. Uh, but to really, uh, uh, the sense of pleasure or satisfaction and, or meaning and purpose and confidence that can come from being really settled and composed in the present moment, settled on the breath, just that one thing, just being here, the sense of aliveness that comes with it, um, can provide a tremendous sense of enjoyment, uh, satisfaction, can come with a tremendous sense of purpose and confidence. In fact, the higher levels of concentration, the Buddha talked about it coming with a lot of confidence. Um, it also comes with a very strong sense of equanimity and very clean, pure sense of mindfulness. So, with this is not something that you can sit down, you know, in five minutes decide to have samadhi, but it's one of those things that um, begins to arise with regular practice. 
And it's like I said at the beginning, samadhi is almost like a sacred thing. And you want to approach something that's sacred with a certain degree of respect. Uh, to be acquisitive and say, I'm going to get this today, you know, or I'm going to be in charge, is not really respectful of how special this kind of state is. In fact, I don't think of samadhi, the state of concentration, as something that I can make happen. Not in, the, in 90, 99% of the time. But rather, it feels like a state of grace. That somehow, it's a, or a gift, it's something that arises or happens when the conditions are right. And I have to kind of put the conditions, kind of get the conditions close, but I can't make it happen. I just kind of have to do the conditions. And then I'm surprised when somehow at some point the samadhi factors come into place. And I start, especially when it's really stable and strong, it's like, a, uh, it's like a, it is like a state shift. And you can feel this, a, 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 a change into a new state of being that is a gift, that is a whole different thing that, um, than the usual state. And some people have no idea that there are different states of being that we can be in. They, you know, the, only, the, only, the only state they know, they think it's normal, is to be distracted or to be anxious or be kind of you know, fragmented and caught up with many things and jumping around. And, and so this experience of being composed and grounded and settled here, so that here is, is f- alive and full and stable. And, and you know, the, the only thing that really occupies the mind is just really here, just here with the breath or here with whatever you might be focusing on. It can feel that holistic state and be aware and dwelling with attention in that state some of you have the experience of maybe doing some activity that brings you a lot of joy, like because of the absorption. You're absorbed in reading a book, or absorbed in playing music, or absorbed in a craft. And it just feels like your cares, your cares of the day can recede, and you're just involved with that thing. And, and it just, not only you get so absorbed and so satisfying to do it, um, uh, and it's nice for sure, Kind of the difference with samadhi is that, maybe, is that with the activity of reading or something like that, it's the activity you're doing that has a lot of your attention. In samadhi, uh, the state, the pleasure, the satisfaction, the holistic feeling of that becomes really prominent. And you can really take it in and, and it becomes a kind of biofeedback system that supports itself and helps it grow and develop even further. Why do this? You know, one of the re- the reason uh, there's a number of reasons why in Buddhism samadhi is emphasized as having value. One reason is that it's very healing. Uh, the, the 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 sense of wholeness, sense of integrity, of unified feeling. The feeling of the energy of our being kind of coursing through us without any obstacles and any resistance, just kind of free flowing of energy. Uh, uh, some people feel that it just it feels like this healing energy is moving through us. It feels, re- it feels really a lot of purity, a lot of goodness. Um, tremendous sense of goodness can kind of feel, can rise through. I, I started appreciating uh, being ethical in a whole new way 
when uh, I started experiencing samadhi and this tremendous sense of goodness or purity within, cleanliness inside, started coursing through my body. And there's a whole different reference point for being ethical. Uh, And I could kind of feel what it would be like to do something unethical that was somehow just kind of caused me to lose that sense of, you know, such, such tremendous feeling of goodness. But also healing. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of, uh, it can heal psychological challenges that people have. It can heal uh, attachments people have. One of, the, one, of the, um, one of the reasons the Buddha emphasized samadhi is that um, it's one of the powerful ways to overcome addictions because you, now you have a pleasure, an enjoyment, a satisfaction that's so much better than a- addiction for sensual pleasure that you can have, to have a really healthy, wholesome alternative. The Buddha seemingly offered samadhi also to his teenage son. I don't know if you knew that Buddha had a son, but he had a teenage son. At some point, his son was a teenager and was studying with his father. And his son, um, it seems from the story that his son uh, had uh, a certain preoccupation with his looks. Now, it's probably, you know, if most of you, when you were teenagers, had probably a little bit more preoccupation in your looks than you have now. And uh, it's not so uncommon. It's kind of concern, you know, looking good and what other people are wearing and doing and all that. Well, it goes back centuries. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and what the Buddha offered was meditation practice as an alternative to that. And I think it's something, about, again, about the inner sense of well-being and confidence in oneself that comes with samadhi that kind of lets you kind of shed, like a snake sheds an old skin, shed some of the vanity and the self-preoccupation that somehow can, you know, grab, you know, hold on to us. And so samadhi can be very helpful for these number of things like this. Healing, purifying, ethical integrity, um, uh, you know, um, letting go of a lot of attachments that can come this way. But the most important reason that uh, samadhi is practiced in Buddhism is that it provides the sense of unity, sense of integrity, stillness, and focus that the mind has then. It's kind of like, it gives the mind kind of like a magnifying glass to really see what's going on in our minds and hearts. There is no more uh, uh, obstruction from seeing, there's no more preoccupation, um, the image, again, is like the, the Buddha gave us is that of a clear pond, a clear lake, where it's completely clear and completely still the water. And you can see right down to all the fish and all little rocks on the bottom. It has that kind of clarity. So you can really see clearly what's going on in your mind. You can see the underlying operating system. Isn't that nice? You can see the DOS of the mind. And you can see the underlying operating system of the mind and what really makes you tick in terms of, um, in relationship to what causes suffering, stress in your life, and what brings happiness and freedom. And so to see the, the, the subtle, and the subtle doesn't mean insignificant, to see the subtle, deep roots of, of what we cling to, what we hold on to so tight, what, really believe, what we believe and kind of, kind of hang on to these beliefs and or let give authority to these deep beliefs we have and these deep attachments. In particular, 
the deep attachment to self. There's a range of ways in which we are attached to ourselves. And you're great. You know, so this is not a dismissing how wonderful you are. Um, but your attachment to yourself is not really necessary. And chances are that your attachment to all the different ways you're attached to yourself, your self-image, your self self-consciousness, your self-presentation to others, your, your all, I mean, it's a whole range of things. Um, if you really are attentive, you see that it's a drag. It's not really serving you. It's not really providing you with happiness and well-being or peace. But to have this clear mind, really clear, stable, you really, and a mind that's also, a samadhi, mind of samadhi is also, can, um, mind is really strong and focused this way. It can actually see how things operate very fast. It's kind of not only is it a magnifying glass, but it's kind of like um, I don't know what I don't know what it's like, but um, it's a um, the, the the mental processing of the mind paradoxically both slows down in terms of thinking and all that, and also uh, speeds up. That we're able to kind of track many more mind moments and what's going on much more fast, much faster. They've done experiments on people who do meditation a lot, and they've done resp- you know. Uh, response tests, how quickly they respond and how quickly they can, uh, like if they flash, um, you know, all these images on the screen, I guess, or they show a picture or something and then they flash something, you know, it's subliminal, most people can't see because it goes on so fast. Well, people who do a lot of meditation have a faster response and they can see the subliminal messages more clearly because the mind is seeing much more precisely fast what's going on or processing. So the experience of the mind is the mind slows down that's how we, kind of this inner subjective sense, quiet and peaceful. But the actual processing speed of the mind seems to speed up. And so there's a kind of a clarity and incisiveness and penetration that can go on when the mind has strong, strong samadhi. Um, it might, this, this kind of emphasis on samadhi is not something that's that relevant for most people in their daily lives. Uh, some people have unusual capacities for strong concentration and they can develop this in daily life. But this is really something that gets developed on retreats. And this, these seven factors of awakening can be a great resource for home life and you know, support life here and there. But um, the higher reaches of what's possible in these has a lot to do with going on retreats where you can cultivate and develop this in an uninterrupted um, way for maybe days at a time. So I'm talking about now this deep, deep penetrating possibility of samadhi. Most people uh, only experience on retreat and then not even on the first, second, third, fourth retreat. Um, It takes a while for the mind to get rectified, to find its way and work through what's there and work out the kinks and have the wisdom and the kindness and the compassion that are needed for this state of stability, calm, unity to arise that is called samadhi. So there's one more step in this path of the seven factors of awakening, <clears throat> and that's equanimity. And um, so samadhi, as it gets deeper and deeper, um, land, get, comes to a state of equanimity, which, um, remember the midpoint here was joy, if you remember step number four. And, um, and so joy is pretty good. Uh, it get, each step further is better is more satisfying, more enjoyable. So even though joy's been left behind, 
Tranquility is a stage better than joy. Samadhi is better than tranquility. And equanimity is the best of them all. So that's going to be the talk in two weeks. If you can develop your samadhi for two weeks. And because uh, I'm off a, a teaching retreat for the next 12 days. So I won't be here next Monday, but um, Meg, who's here, Meg Gowler is going to give a talk uh, next um, Monday. I'm very honored and happy that you're coming to do it. Thank you. And uh, I will uh, be back here in two weeks. Thank you all. <laughs>